Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Bielis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we're continuing our Women of the Faith series. In it, we're talking about the stories of women from church history that will encourage us to trust our God who does not change. Today, author and acquisitions editor Catherine Parks is going to share two incredible women with us, Esther On Kim and Charlotte Fortin Grimke. These ladies will inspire you to live for God even in the hardest circumstances. I can't wait for you to hear more about them. But before we get started, I want to say a big thank you to those of you who support our podcast through your generous donations. Journey Women is a nonprofit organization that exists to move women to know and love God, to find their hope in the gospel, and to invest deeply in their local churches as they go out on mission for the glory of God. If you'd like to join us in this endeavor, you can learn more at journeywomen.org forward slash give. Guys, You need to know about Scriptura, a company that crafts beautiful new Bibles with custom leather covers and restores special or sentimental Bibles that are falling apart. They offer multiple translations and styles of new Bibles, so if you're looking for a quality leather Bible, you should check them out. Also, their Bible restoration process is simple and so beautifully done. I absolutely love my recently restored ESB study Bible. Scriptura even gives a portion of all proceeds to Bible translation work around the world, which is amazing. Do you know someone who would love to have an old Bible restored, or do you want to gift a new Bible to someone? Check out scriptura.co and as a Journeywoman listener, get 15% off your order with the code journey15. That's scriptura.co and use the code journey15 for 15% off your order. Catherine Parks, welcome back to the Journey Women podcast. Thank you so much. It's so fun to be back. I am super happy to tell you that my girls have finally grown into something that you wrote long ago when we first met. (laughs) In my mind, your girls are still like toddler preschool age. So that's how I will always think of them. Absolutely. So a little backstory. Back in the day when I lived outside of Nashville, Catherine and I connected and she was publishing a book called Empowered, How God Shaped 11 Women's Lives. And at the time, I thought, this is such a fantastic book. I think I even read it for myself personally, but my little girls were so young that they couldn't fully appreciate it. And then when we started brainstorming this series, Women of the Faith, of course, we thought of you and I pulled it out and realized, wow, I can double dip on my work. I can actually read and do the mom thing while reading aloud about Christian missionaries and biography to my kids and simultaneously be working for Journey Women. So praise the Lord. Thank you for letting me overlap my roles. (laughs) I totally get that. That's always good. So tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do, because you've even taken on a new role since we originally met. And I think since I did our first interview. So yeah, tell us about what you do professionally and tell us about your personal life. Yeah. So I live in the Nashville area with my husband, Eric, and we have two kids. Our daughter's 15 and our son is 12. And I work also as an acquisitions editor for Moody Publishers. So basically that means I get to work with authors and develop books and kind of shepherd them through that process. So yeah, I've only been doing that for like a year and a half. So it it is relatively new, but I really love it and love being on that side of the publishing industry and just kind of getting to be a cheerleader for authors and see their books go out and minister to people and the Lord use them. I know you're so good at that. Well, tell us about how you kind of came up with the idea for this book, Empowered. At the time, my daughter was nine, I guess, when it came out. Hadley's eight now. So see, target demographic. Yeah. So (laughs) Sophie was eight when I was kind of coming up with the concept. And really what had happened is the 2016 election happened and the Women's March happened, Mm. the kind of first women's march. And I just remember talking with friends and uh, my friend Palmer and I were talking and she was like, you know, I just feel like there is so much pressure on our girls to be everything. And I remember going to Target and seeing all of these 
shirts that said, you know, the future is female and women's empowerment and hearing the messages from the women's march and just feeling like my daughter's generation and your daughter's generation were going to be saddled with so many expectations that were just way too heavy for them to live up to and not really what the Lord had for them. So started to think about the idea of what is true empowerment? You know, where does that come from? And what do I want my daughter to learn about what kind of power she should seek in the world? And at the same time, there were so many biographies that I wanted her to read and wanted us to read together and so little time. And so kind of those two things just converged. And um, I felt like the Lord just led me to this idea of writing all of these kind of chapter length biographies for girls with the theme of God being the one who gives the power to love the unlovable person or to stand up for justice or to be faithful through really difficult situations. And my hope is that the girls who read this and boys would learn that the same God who did those things for these women can do it for them and is working in their lives in the same way. Absolutely, because there's not just one for girls. There is also one for boys. It's called Strong. And I actually just purchased that because I didn't have that on my shelf. And so I'm, we're really excited to read both. Would you say that like it's appropriate for boys to read the girls and girls to read the boys? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are some specific questions that maybe lean a little bit more towards one gender or the other, but mm-hmm. the stories themselves are applicable to anybody. And And I would hope that, you know, kids would learn to read about the other sex. That would be really encouraging, I think. Well, two stories that I really wanted to hone in on today are Esther on Kim and Charlotte Fortin Gimke, two people that we probably haven't heard a lot about, honestly, even if you have grown up reading Christian biography and things like that. So let's start with Esther on Kim. Can you tell us a little bit about her story? And I know prior to her getting married, we're going to call her a Sook, correct? So the way it works, it was her Korean name. And when she moved to the U.S. later in life, she took on the name Esther which is fitting for her story as well, as we'll learn more about. Oh, yes. So tell us about her life. Like, where did she grow up and stuff? Yeah, so Asuk was born in Korea in 1908. And I have become more of a history buff as I've gotten older. But I feel like the kind of Pacific part of early 20th century history is not something that I know a lot about. And so it was really interesting to learn about the Korean annexation. So Japan came in and annexed Korea, basically taking like colonial rule over Korea for 35 years. And we saw that like play out later during World War II as Japan is fighting China. And so they start to like really clamp down on Korea in harsher ways during that period. But this meant that at the time that Asuk was growing up, Koreans were forced to adopt Japanese customs. They couldn't retain their Korean names, but they had to take Japanese names. They couldn't worship the way they previously worshipped, but had to adopt the Japanese Shinto religion, which involved worshipping nature spirits and ancestors and even the Japanese emperor. And so Aesuk grew up during this time in a religiously divided home. Mm -hmm. Her mom was a Christian and her father's family practiced idol worship it seemed like her parents even had very different ideas about her education. So Mm. her mom wanted her to go to a mission school and her dad insisted that she would be better off in her life and her career if she had a Japanese education. And so she went to a public school in Korea and learned Japan. And then he sent her to university in Japan. And so she studied in Japan long enough to become fluent in the language But she also grew to really love the Japanese people. And then when she came home to Korea, she ended up teaching music at a Christian school. I love reading that portion in your book where it's talking about kind of that division and her grandmother seemed very like absorbed in, is it the Shinto religion that she was absorbed in? Like, how did she feel about her grandmother's faith and some of her other family members who did not share her mother's Christian faith? Yeah, I thought this part of her story was actually very encouraging and a little bit convicting. <laughs> and her and all of this comes from her autobiography, which is called If I Perish. And it's fantastic. I'm just going to give a plug for it. I give it as teacher gifts and I give it as graduation gifts. It's just really, really beautifully written and it's an amazing story. I love that little nod to Esther. Yes. She writes in her autobiography as being a child that she really hated seeing her grandmother worshiping idols. 
she's aware that her grandmother is deeply religious, but she couldn't see any positive effects of the idol worship in her grandmother's life. She was just a miserable, bitter, unhappy woman. And Asuk tells a story of creeping into the room where, where her grandmother kept her idols or kept the food that was to be sacrificed to the idols. And mm-hmm. she yells at the idols saying, why do you eat the best foods and then make my grandmother unhappy? She says, die eating the food mixed with my spittle. And then she spat on her finger and rubbed it on all of the food that was supposed to be sacrificed to these idols and... Later, she even like takes horse dung and and does a similar thing with that. But she's just so angry at these idols and this idea that she sees her grandmother living her life for something. She calls them demons. Asuk says, you demons, why can't you make happiness and peace? Why do you make grandmother unpleasant and upset while she worships you? And so she has this kind of front row seat to the effect of idol worship on her grandmother's life. And she hates it. She hates seeing it. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah. So her mom was a Christian. So what kind of impact did her mom's faith have on her? Obviously, we know she became a Christian. What is that whole kind of part of her story? How does that unfold? Yeah. So this is where I think the encouragement comes in is that she's kind of as a child, comparing and contrasting what she's seeing in her grandmother's life and what she's seeing in her mom's life. And she's, she just has this living testimony in front of her of the power of Christ versus the power of idols in a person's life, because her mom is this peaceful, happy, contented woman, even though, you know, she apparently has this difficult marriage and her personal circumstances are not great, but she sees that her mother is really contented in Christ. And she recounts talking to her mom one night before bed and her mom saying, as you can see, idols have no power at all. The Lord Jesus is the only one who can give us true power and happiness and peace. And so as a result of watching her mom's faith, Asuk also trusted Christ. And, you know, she writes kind of throughout her book about the power of her mom's influence over her and um, her mom's faith. She later, which we'll get into, but she was trying to make this decision on whether to go on this difficult mission that she felt like God was maybe calling her to. And, Mm -hmm. and so she decides that basically she's going to like test God and she's going to go out in a crowd. And if all the people turn and look at her, she will know that it's because God has made her face glow. And that's the sign that she should go on this mission. And so she goes out in this like freezing cold rain and she's waiting for people to turn and look at her and they don't. And so she finally goes home like miserable and crying. And her mom is just like, what are you thinking? (laughs) She says, you read your Bible, but you want to do what the Bible does not say. Jonah did not pray for a sign when he went to the city of Nineveh to warn the people to repent of their sins. Esther did not ask for a sign before she approached the king. It is wrong and dangerous to ask God for what the Bible does not say. The Bible is our guide. And so you get these little glimpses into kind of the ongoing influence that her mom had in her life to kind of just shepherd and guide her toward truth and to encourage her throughout some really difficult circumstances. I can imagine one of the difficult circumstances was just having the Japanese government like oppressing their religion, oppressing their worship of the Lord by trying to ensure idol worship and adherence to the Shinto religion. So what was their response to that request? Yeah, so gradually shrines to these Japanese idols were just placed in every part of daily life. And so Every school, every government office, every home, even every Christian church had at least one idol that people had to bow down to. And please, we'd even come to church services to make sure that every person bowed to the Shinto God before the service began. So it's this, you know, kind of complete takeover. And even in this Christian school that she was teaching in, um, she kind of had this, this battle with the principal because... I can kind of feel that tension of, as a principal, you know, it's your job to educate these students. You want to do all the good that you can. If you don't follow the government's rules, you and your students could be tortured. The school could be shut down. And so in some ways, I mean, it's not unlike decisions that we're making 
of how far are we going to go? Are we going to compromise or, you know, do the ends justify the means and some of those things? And for ASUC, they just didn't. And so at the beginning of each month, all the students and teachers from the local schools would be taken out to a shrine where they were forced to worship the Japanese sun goddess. And they knew it was coming. And so refusal to do so meant, like I said, the school could be closed and those who refused to bow would be tortured. And so as Asuk is walking out there with her students one day, she is thinking, there's no way I can do this. I can't do this in front of my students. She's hearing her students talk and kind of, you know, wrestle with why is our teacher doing this? Is God going to take care of us if she does this? And she remembers the words of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that they spoke to Nebuchadnezzar when they say in Daniel 3.18, they talk about how God can save them, but then they use the words, but if not. And she just remembers those words, but if not. Wow. And she writes, even if God did not save them from the burning fire, they were saying they would die honoring him. I was going to make that same decision with God's help. I would never bow before the Japanese idol even if he did not save me from the hands of the Japanese, I was saved by Jesus. I could bow only before God, the Father of my Savior. I felt as though I could already see the burning furnace yawning for me. Yeah, so she walks up there, and when it came time to bow, she was the only one who refused. Then as she's walking back to the school with her students, she writes that she prayed, everything is finished now. I've done what I should have done. I commit the rest to you. Now, the only way left for me is to hear and follow you. And what I love so much about her book is that every page is just saturated with scripture. And it's not like, to be honest, like if I'm writing something, I'm like Googling verses on <laughs> peace or verses right, right, right. on hope. But you just get the feeling that like she is it's so, so seeped into her yes, bones. She's just saturated with it. It just comes out. And it's so encouraging. And so that's John 14. Just all of these words of Jesus are in her mind as she's walking down from, you know, committing this atrocity in the eyes of the Japanese government. And she's hearing the words of Jesus talking about, I'm not going to leave you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. And so those are the words that are comforting her with what she's facing. Wow. Wow. Because she knew she was probably going to face arrest. So was there anything else that she did to prepare herself? Because she didn't get arrested in that moment. What did she do to kind of prepare herself for her imminent arrest and punishment? Yeah. So what happens is she gets back to the school and there are four detectives waiting for her and they arrest her and they take her to the district chief. But in the middle of him yelling at her, he gets a phone call and he runs out of the office. And so she just gets up and goes out of the building, (laughs) goes back to her house and starts gathering up some things and then she goes into hiding because she knows she can't escape it forever. Right, exactly. Yeah. But she spends that time in hiding, like you said, preparing herself for the day that she knew she would be captured and put in prison. And so she realizes I'm not going to have a Bible in prison. So she memorizes more than 100 chapters of scripture and she memorizes many hymns and so she's knowing, you know, this is what I need. And then she fasts for days at a time and would sleep in the cold in order to prepare her body for the harsh conditions of prison. And so it's like, you know, how we might train for a marathon. She's training for mm. <laughs> imprisonment. But I think what is at the foremost of her mind and her concern is that she wants to suffer well. She knows that it's going to happen and she doesn't want to cave. And she talked at one point about she knew she was willing to die, but she didn't know how long she could be tortured. Mm. And she was concerned that the torture might be so great. What if she denied her faith? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that like tension. And so I think a lot of that preparation is for the kind of strength she would need to make sure that she did not deny her faith. I know you guys are loving this conversation with Catherine, and because of that, I want to tell you about another sponsor who helped make it possible, Dwell. You know we're all about God's Word here at Journey Women, and that is why we love telling you about the Dwell Bible app. Their mission is inspired by the psalmist who encourages us in Psalm 119 to hide the Word of God in our hearts. 
Dwell offers many different versions of the Bible, like ESV, NIV, KJV, NLT, The Message, and others. They actually even have the International Children's Bible available in the New Testament, and it's read by actual kids. Really cool. We love Dwell's Read feature, which allows you to fully tailor the Bible reading experience with customizable themes, styles, and fonts. Go to dwellbible.com slash journeywomen to get 10% off a yearly subscription or 30% off Dwell for life. That's dwellbible.com slash journeywomen to commit to scripture for the rest of this year or for life. What other fears did she maintain and how did she kind of overcome those to continue to walk forward in faith? Yeah, so she ends up in her hiding, she goes to Pyongyang and she meets with a lot of other Christians and several of them had released, been released from prison. And so they're kind of giving their first person accounts of what that was like. (laughs) And so she kind of describes this scene where everyone's sitting around, they're listening and you just kind of have this awareness. Like this is not just an idea anymore. Like this is um, a reality that many of us could be facing very soon. And Mm she just describes crying at the thought of what she might experience. Mm. And like I said, being just fearful of, of what that torture could include and what it would mean for her faith and would she be strong enough. And so she's kind of wrestling with all of this. She's still in hiding, but knowing like prison is coming for her. And then one day she gets this completely unexpected knock on the door from a man named Elder Park. And it's a much longer story, but basically this guy comes to her house and says, God has told me to go to the Japanese leaders in Tokyo and to warn them that God is going to punish them because of what the Japanese soldiers and officials are doing to the Korean people. And he says, I'm supposed to go and you're supposed to go too because you speak the Japanese language and you love God. You're, you have this beautiful faith that he's heard about. And so he says, God has led me here so that he can use you. She's like, man, you're crazy. Exactly. <laughs> I can't even comprehend what that. No, I would, would be, be like, like, okay, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is the decision that she's wrestling with when she goes out and like expects her face to be glowing as a sign that she's supposed to go. No wonder. Yes. (laughs) So, and you can kind of relate, right? Like, God, you're going to have to make it a little bit more clear than a random man knocking on my door. And yet that is some clarity. (laughs) And so she understands, you know, going to Japan could mean even greater torture than what she's already facing. And when her mom kind of lovingly rebukes her to not test God, but to look to scripture, Asuk then spends three days in prayer and fasting and just reading scripture and asking the Lord to show her what to do. And at the end of that time, she knows that being beaten or starved or even killed, she says, would be better than disobeying God. And this is what God had called her to do. Oh my goodness. I am so challenged by that. You know, When I look at my own life and I am walking through something hard, I can often look back on things and say, wow, I had no idea that God was preparing me for what he had prepared for me, like what he would allow in my life. So how could you see in Asuk's life how God had prepared her for this great task and how did she rely on him for strength to accomplish it. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that you really see as a through line in her autobiography is just nothing's wasted, you know, that the Lord had designed all of this. And I think that's true of so many of us and we can't always see it like you're saying. And I'm sure there were times that she was really unhappy at being forced to go to school in Japan and learn Japanese because of her father's insistence. And yet it was that Japanese education and her God-given love for the Japanese people that developed while she was there that led her to this opportunity to serve him by going to Tokyo. And you get that like for such a time as this idea from that, that, you know, she was really prepared to do this. And what happened is, you know, the Japanese soldiers were committing atrocities in Korea that a lot of the Japanese leaders didn't even know about. And so 
um, she talks about seeing all of these Japanese uh, soldiers, like young men getting on trains and thinking, you know, they are being sent to do something that is so awful and that they have no control over. And just having this real conviction that she needed to do something to make sure that people knew what was happening. Mm. And so to make this long story really short, basically the message that Elder Park and Asuk believed that they were supposed to give the Japanese leaders was to warn them of God's judgment that would be seen by fire falling from the sky if the Japanese people did not turn from their sin against him and his people. And so a lot of that is because there were so many Christians in Korea who were being persecuted. Mm -hmm. And so this message leads them to go to the Imperial Diet, which was a meeting of the highest officials in Japan. And in the middle of the assembly, Elder Park drops a sign down from the balcony on which he had written a message that called the government to repent and withdraw from Korea and to examine what was the true religion, Shintoism or Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so immediately the two of them are arrested. And, you know, these are like the catalyzing events in her story, but over half of her autobiography takes place while she's in prison. She lived in a Japanese prison for six years. And really some of the most compelling chapters in the book are her ministry to her fellow prisoners. And it's so beautiful the way that she leaned on the Lord's strength to love the prisoners and the guards who many people would say were unlovable. But I think she truly believed that God had placed her even in that place and that time for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so the same way that she sought to be faithful as you know, a teacher and as a student and being faithful to go to Japan, she was doing the same thing where she was in prison and just trying to do what she could for God's glory in the time that she was given. And so I think to answer your question about that, the preparation, there's a quote from her book that I love. She says, it was an unbelievable privilege for a person like me sinful, selfish, conceited, and with many faults to receive an order from God, who is the Lord of the heavens and earth. I was overwhelmed in spite of my weakness mm. and sinfulness. The Lord had given me the grace to walk and work with him. And I just, that last part about the Lord had given me the grace to walk and work with him is so beautiful. And I think that's really, that's the way that she lived her life. And, um, even after she was released from prison, she ended up marrying a pastor and they moved to Los Angeles and he pastored a church there for decades faithfully. And uh, she ended up passing away just in the last maybe decade or so in Atlanta. And she had Alzheimer's wow. in her later years. and But just even in the end of her life, her nephew actually reached out to me and kind of gave me a testimony of what the end of her life was like. And that every wow. time he went to see her, she was the most encouraging. She was his favorite aunt. And again, still scripture was always on her tongue and she was always encouraging him. So that was such a shock to me <laughs> to have someone reach out because it's like, you know, this is a historical figure and this is somebody that we're reading about in a biography. And then all of a sudden it's oh, this is someone's aunt. <laughs> totally personifies. Yes. And she really is who we think she is, which is always That's encouraging. so cool. Wow. And too, I thought it was so fascinating how, you know, fire falling down from the sky, like really came true when people came in and bombed. Can you give a little bit of an account of that when, when the bombing happened? Yeah. So she heard nothing about that until she got out of prison and then finds out, you know, about the atomic bombs. And literally what she had told people is, God's going to rain sulfur down on Japan. And you're reading that and you're like, what? This is, this does not fit with my <laughs> theology necessarily. <laughs> but yes. it's crazy. So that fascinating. Happens. Yes. And and it's almost like it's just this understated thing in the book where it's like, and then I found out God did do that. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, again, like the heart was not just for the Korean people. It was for the Japanese people to be spared. Yeah. And it was for the Japanese soldiers to be spared, you know, the requirement to take part in the atrocities that they were committing. And there's something in that, I think, to learn too about 
where compassion should be directed. And Hmm. yeah, so many layers of things to learn there. Absolutely. Well, I am so inspired. Uh, Number one, to walk in obedience. Number two, just to hide God's word in my heart. So Mm -hmm. there's so much that we could unpack. But Unfortunately, and fortunately, I have chosen to cover two people in this episode. So tell us, who was Charlotte Fortkin Grimke? And I guess back in the day, she didn't have that last name. So yeah, who was Charlotte Louise Bridges Fortin? And what did her family do? What was her life like? Yeah, so Charlotte Fortin was born in 1837 in Philadelphia into an African-American family of abolitionists. Her grandfather had served as a powder boy in the Revolutionary War, and he later went to England, where he invented some sort of sailing device that earned him a great deal of money. And rather than, you know, kind of sitting back and just enjoying his wealth, he comes back to America to fight for freedom, not just from slavery, but also freedom of education and freedom for African-Americans to contribute to and be a part of society. So that's her grandfather. And then her father also spoke against slavery and he joined the Union Army to fight in the Civil War Mm -hmm. and was actually the first African-American to be buried with full military honors. He died in 1864. So toward the end of the war, he was very outspoken against slavery. So again, you know, these are, they're in Philadelphia. And so they're not living in the Confederate South but are still, you know, well aware of racism and of the plights of their enslaved brothers and sisters. And he kept Charlotte home for her education rather than sending her to segregated schools until later in life. He was just really passionate about her education. And her uncle was also an abolitionist and his home was a station in the Underground Railroad. Her mother and her aunts were founding members of the Women's Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia. So this is the environment in which she's growing up. You know, she describes these, it was almost like their family home was this revolving door of abolitionists and writers and poets who are constantly coming through and, you know, discussing big ideas. And she's just kind of in the middle of all of that. And then when she's 16, she left home for Salem, Massachusetts, and she attended school there. So this was secondary school, and she was the only Black student. And she writes these journals, and so they're part of the public domain. And so you can just go online and find her journals, and they are so amazing. (laughs) They're fascinating to me because I think it's this combination of both the universal struggles of adolescence. You know, you're reading it and you're like, oh yeah, I feel, I felt like that. I remember being, you know, 15 and feeling the exact same way about things. Hmm. But then it's also this unique and very personal pain that she faces being a young black woman living in the North during slavery in the civil war and being surrounded by fellow students and teachers who don't understand things in the same way and don't have the same sympathy and passion that she wants them to have for the plight of slaves. Yeah. When did her kind of convictions to fight against slavery really begin to develop? Yeah. So, you know, she grew up with, like I said, all of these influences in her life. And so I'm sure that she had those anti-slavery convictions from the very beginning, but Mm -hmm. we get a glimpse from her journal of when she really starts to feel the impact as she's, you know, kind of coming of age and thinking of things on her own. And she describes the case of a runaway slave who was captured and was facing sentencing. And she writes that he was, quote, arrested like a criminal in the streets of the Capitol and is now kept strictly guarded. A double police force is required. The military are in readiness, all for this one man. She says, all this is done to prevent a man whom God has created in his own image from regaining that freedom with which he and with which every other human being is endowed. And so she takes this very personal and special interest in this case. And when this man is sentenced to be returned to his master, Charlotte is just distraught. And she she returns to school determined to work even harder in order to, as she said, change the condition of my oppressed and suffering people. And, you know, this is when she starts to see 
you know, when you're really passionate about a cause and the people around you don't share your passion. Right. (laughs) And yet this is so personal to her. And so she longs for her white classmates to understand and to feel the sorrow that she's feeling. And she frequently finds herself in situations where she's the only one who considers ending slavery as supremely important. There's just kind of this general apathy in the circles that she runs in. And that's just really heartbreaking for her. Wow. Well, I was super just enthralled at that point of her story and just cannot imagine the position that she was in being the only African-American in her schooling context. It's crazy. Our last sponsor for today's episode is Prep Dish. Do you ever feel burned out from meal planning or trying to make healthy meals in a timely manner? I know I do. And I have a solution to offer you, Prep Dish. Prep Dish is a healthy meal planning service designed to help you prep delicious homemade meals for the week in just one to two hours so you don't have to think about what's for dinner for the rest of the week. Prep Dish marks one giant thing off the to-do list every day by freeing you up from having to plan and prepare a last minute meal every afternoon. And they have delicious meals like Caesar salmon wraps, apricot glazed chicken thighs, and chipotle ground turkey tostadas. If you need to take a mental break and have somebody else handle the meal planning, they have got you. And you can even try Prep Dish for two weeks totally for free. Just go to PrepDish.com journey for this amazing deal. Again, that's PrepDish.com journey for your first two weeks totally free. How did she cling to Christ? while she was witnessing and experiencing such injustice. Yeah, I think this is really where the strength of like reading her own words is so powerful because she writes in her journal when she's 16. This is kind of a long quote, but um, I think it's worth reading. She says, Oh, I long to be good, to be able to meet death calmly and fearlessly, strong in faith and holiness. But this I know can only be through one who died for us, through the pure and perfect love of him who was all holiness and love. But how can I hope to be worthy of his love while I still cherish this feeling towards my enemies, this unforgiving spirit? This is a question which I ask myself very often. Other things in comparison with this seem easy to overcome, but hatred of oppression seems to be so blended with hatred of the oppressor, I cannot separate them. I feel that no other injury could be so hard to bear, so very hard to forgive as that inflicted by cruel oppression and prejudice. And just that struggle that you can feel of how can I love the people who are oppressing Mm -hmm. my people? Let me tell you what I still struggle with at 35. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, Definitely wasn't writing that at 16. No kidding. (laughs) Maybe I'll grow into that when I'm 60. (laughs) Yeah. She later kind of comes back to, I know that God is not going to let this go on forever. Wow. And just depending on that sense of justice, like knowing that God in his character is just, and he's not going to let slavery continue forever. And yet that tension of it's that already not yet kind of reality and a very real sense in that time. Yeah. How did she fight against just sincere discouragement and despair for the rest of her life? Yeah. She talks about, you know, some instances where she personally faces racism, particularly in Philadelphia. So I think there's despair related to that, but a lot of her despair seems to be caused by her deep desire to do something to help her fellow African-Americans and feeling unable to do that. You know, I think that's something that is really relatable as a teenager that you just, you want to do something. (laughs) You want to be able to take action and make a difference. And she, in her journal, is just kind of fighting that despair and pleading for Mm -hmm. God's help. And then also resolving to do whatever she can to help her people And so she takes the opportunities that she's given to write and speak against the injustice of slavery. But I also think it's worth mentioning that she felt this heavy burden of needing to prove the worth of African-Americans through her own skill and education. In all her white school, she took it upon herself to prove that these racist ideologies were wrong. When people defended slavery by saying that manual labor was all that her people were fit to do, 
she took it upon herself to disprove that belief by excelling in her education. But what a heavy burden that is, you know, for a, a young woman to carry. She couldn't learn for the sake of learning, but felt like she had to excel in her education in order to defend the rights of African-Americans as a whole. I just have no concept of the kind of pressure that that is. And that's kind of a theme throughout this journal is I just have to do whatever I can. And so she has this poem that is kind of written anonymously and chosen to be read at her commencement from school and only at the end did they reveal that it was written by her and she gets this, you know, standing ovation. It's this beautiful moment, but it's also, you know, you read it now and you're like, oh, that, it shouldn't be like that, right? You know, you have this sense of the injustice of having to prove your value through being the best at something. And so there's just that kind of a bittersweet element to that, I think. How did she really come alongside people and children who had been freed from slavery? From what I remember, that seemed to be a big part of her work. Yeah. So she went to school. She ends up getting training to become a teacher and she taught in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. And then once the civil war started in 1861, the union took a strategic hold on the South Carolina coast of Port Royal and the sea islands. And so what happens, the union comes in and takes this hold. And as a result, most of the white residents just fled the islands and fled their plantations and flooded inland. And so thousands of slaves were left behind with no education and really not a way to survive, but they were in effect given freedom as a result of this. And so the U.S. government began sending people to the area who could teach the newly freed men and women, and they started a school on St. Helena Island in South Carolina. It was actually the poet John Greenleaf Whittier, who was a friend of Charlotte's, who encouraged her to apply to go to Port Royal as a teacher. And so when she's 25, she sails from New York to head to South Carolina to be the first Black teacher at the Penn School for Newly Freed Children. In the day, she would teach these kids to read and write in the little brick church on the island. And then in the evening, she would do the same for the adults on the plantation where she lived. And she also took a role in nursing Union soldiers, particularly African-American men who had enlisted to fight for the Union. And so she kind of goes from this existence in Massachusetts and Philadelphia that is very different. And she sails down and is surrounded by um, people who speak a different dialect than she does. And so she's trying to learn right alongside the people that she's there to teach. And her descriptions of that time are fascinating. She ends up meeting Harriet Tubman and just has all of these fascinating experiences. And again, she records them in a journal and her journals were published by the Atlantic Monthly. Give a look at life for these newly freed African-Americans in the South during the war and before Reconstruction. And so again, you can find those online and they're really, I think they're just fascinating to read about her experience. Wow. Very, very inspiring. So, you know, we've talked about both of these women and both of them just seem like such giants of the faith, you know, especially in comparison to me. <laughs> I'm like... You know, oh man, I, I couldn't even hold a candle to what they did for the kingdom. How did God use them, though, in their circumstances to accomplish these great things for his glory? And how might their lives actually encourage us in our kind of everyday, ordinary lives to walk forward in faithfulness as they did? Yeah, I think that you're right. It's tempting to elevate people as like giants of the faith. And it's interesting when you look at both of these women because their lives were in a lot of ways not that remarkable <laughs> until they were, right? And so, you know, they're both teachers. They grew up in systems of injustice and persecution. And both of them, their hearts were really drawn to the plights of the people around them. And hmm. Charlotte's journal talks about kind of her wrestling with this desire to do something big and important. And she struggles with this idea of like, what is sinful ambition and what's godly ambition and how do I know the difference? And which I think we can all relate to, especially in our younger days. But in the end, I think what you see from them both is that they just went about their daily lives with the resolve to do all they could to honor God and to serve their fellow man. And it was this daily obedience that God used to give them both the opportunity and the strength 
to stand for justice and serve other people faithfully. And really, I think that's one of the main things that we learn when we study women from church history is that these women aren't trying to do anything remarkable. And I think for most of them, given the chance, they would rather have not, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that Asa or Esron Kim would rather have not spent six years of her life in prison if she could have honored God by doing mm. something else. And I think what you see is these are just people who are living in step with the spirit and paying attention to the world mm -hmm. around them and looking for ways to shine a light and push back the darkness in their sphere, whatever that is, whether it's small or big, you know, that's what I learned from them is I don't have to do what they did, but am I paying attention to the people around me? Am I paying attention to the darkness and looking for ways to push it back just a little bit by shining the light of Christ? Yeah, I love that. And another thing I find so encouraging, kind of a simple joy, if you will, when it comes to studying women from church history like these two, is just to think about how integral the very basic disciplines of our faith were to propelling them to walk in obedience. Because a lot of times I feel so overwhelmed by decisions I'm making or, you know, just my own sin and having to wage war against it. And just to remember, just go back to the basics, go back to the basics of scripture memory, like with Esther, you know, go back to the basics of just walking in obedience to love our neighbor, like with Charlotte, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, let's just go back to the basics. That's a simple joy for me when it comes to studying women from church history. Do you have any kind of simple joys um, from looking at the lives of women from the past? Yeah. I mean, one of the ones that you already talked about was just um, the, the desire to memorize scripture. I'm always so challenged by that because you see, even in Charlotte's journals, there's just this like interweaving of the truths of scripture that is so natural and organic to her way of writing and speaking. And, um, and then of course, as I mentioned already with the autobiography by Esther and Kim, that you just see scripture everywhere. And I think that's such a challenge <laughs> to me and a conviction. And, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about even the, the basic disciplines that we see in their lives and how it's easy to make excuses today <laughs> to think, oh, well, if I lived back when they did without, you know, electricity and without smartphones and without cars, then all I would do at night is meditate on God's word yes. <laughs> and play the piano forte. Um, <laughs> but there's distraction in any age and they chose the better portion and that's what mm. I want and so often don't do. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't know if it's a simple joy or a very deep convicting thought, but yeah, yeah, yeah. A simple kick in the pants. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I often feel like that when I read women from church history. And honestly, it's really good, I think, just to have that perspective and to to zoom out, you know, from our current cultural context and to see, hey, you know, this might feel really hard, but let's look at like what's been really hard over the last, you know, however many hundreds of years. Looking at scripture does the same thing for me where you're like, okay, let's remember God's faithfulness to his people throughout all of redemptive history. And that encourages me to walk forward in trust and obedience to whatever it is that he set before me today. So if you were going to nail it down to just like one person from church history, who would you say has had like a great impact on your personal journey with Jesus? This is, of course, like the worst question of all time. <laughs> no offense. Yeah, it's really tough, but I love Corey Ten Boom. And she's probably one of the better known <laughs> just because yeah. the hiding place is so amazing. Um, but I remember just being aware of her throughout my childhood and discovering one day when I was looking at a biography that my parents had of her, that she and I shared a birthday and that she died on the day and the year that I was born. And I just felt this like connection, you know, and there's this idea, I guess, in Jewish tradition that to die on your birthday is like a sign of blessing. And so it just felt really special to me as a kid that I was born the day that she died and, and that we shared a birthday. And it was sadly like a really long time after that, that I finally actually read The Hiding Place. But it was 
I don't know how to re- even really express how life altering it was for me. But I think there's something, you know, and I talk in Empowered about like, I cover Corey in a chapter and I cover Betsy in a chapter and how it's almost hard to cover Betsy because we don't really know what she was <laughs> truly like, because what we learn of her is Corey's perspective of her. And mm. I think Corey is so hard on herself in writing The Hiding Place. And she is maybe overly kind to the memory of Betsy. And yet it's that honesty that she writes about her own struggles, her struggle to be contented in a concentration camp when there are fleas, her struggle to thank God for things that seem really hard, her struggle to love really difficult people, including Mm. the man that she loved who jilted her and married someone Mm. else. And just the relatability of all of that is so powerful to me. And then I ended up giving the book to my daughter when she was 10. There's like a junior reader's edition. And that was what the Lord used to draw her to himself. And wow. Yeah. And I just remember her telling me that, you know, if God could take care of Corey and Betsy, that she knew he could take care of her. And just that simple faith that it inspired in her is such a gift that I'll always be so thankful for. So. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, if people want to learn more about Corey Tin Boom, we covered her story with Laura Wickham in this series. So she will also be included. And if people want to learn more about women from church history, I just have to highly recommend Empowered, how God shaped 11 women's lives by Catherine Parks. So thank, thank you. you so much for yeah. joining us and talking about these ladies today. It's been such an inspiration to me and a joy to have you on the show. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you so much, Hunter. I appreciate it. We pray that this episode encourages you to walk forward in faith, even when you feel afraid. If you found this episode helpful, consider sharing our Women of the Faith series with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Also, if you've learned something while listening to this series, please send a voice memo that's 30 seconds or less to info at journeywomenpodcast.com. We would love to feature your response in the last episode of this series airing on May 29th. Lastly, if you're looking for resources from this series, you can find our Journey Women specific storefront with 10 of those bookstore at the link in our show notes. As always, thanks so much for listening. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.